I'm going to invite you to have a seat this morning. My name is Josh McLean. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege to regularly be uh, afforded the opportunity to open God's Word and to preach from it. This morning we find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark, and particularly in chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 11 down to verse 21. And so if you've got your Bible, your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn there. Regularly, this is the rhythm of the church. You may realize that recently we celebrated our two-year anniversary. This morning we sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. That is our mantra in 2021, just recognizing and relishing in the fact that God has been faithful to us. Not because of solid business plans as a church or even thoughtful models, but really because we as a people have leaned into the word of God, trusting that he will change us, that he will feed us through the regular, regular opening of his word. And so let's do that this morning. Let's continue in that. We celebrate the faithfulness of God to his people. Let's remain faithful to him. Let's look at his word this morning. Verses 11 through 21, Mark chapter 8. This is what the word of God says. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, he got in the boat again, and he went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, the disciples. They only had one loaf with them there in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketful of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And he's And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, again, quickly, we admit our need, our dependence on you. Spirit, we pray that you would work in our hearts and minds. And again, that your people would be fed as we work through this passage. We ask that these things be done again in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at two separate groups of people. The first is the foe. Particularly, we're going to look at their heart, the foe's heart. And then quickly, we'll move on to the follower's heart. And so the foe's heart and the follower's heart. The heart of Jesus' enemies, we'll consider that what we can learn about them through this text and the heart of Jesus's followers. And as we do that, I want to invite you to do this. This is our main point for the day. As you consider Christ, consider your heart. As you consider Christ, consider your heart. Let me explain what that means, but first let's look at the foe's heart. Look at verse 11. It says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Remember, they are now in an area called Dalmanutha. 
It's really difficult to tell where exactly that city or area is located, but we do know this. It's along the shore of the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee, and likely it's on the west side. Remember, they had been on the east side in the Decapolis, but now they've left there and they've gone from the feeding, they've gone to Dalmanutha. This is where they've run in to the Pharisees. And so in some ways we can imagine that they went west and maybe it's there close to Capernaum. We're not sure. But either way, they're there on the shore in that town, we would assume, and the Pharisees, they show up. Likely this is pointing to the fact that this is a Jewish majority city or town or area and and so they're there, and they come to argue with Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something about this verb. It, it doesn't necessarily mean mean and aggressive, disrespectful. It doesn't necessarily mean that. It, 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 it could mean more of just a, a focused discussion or a debate. They're trying to get to the bottom of something. It gives the idea, this, this verb, that, that they had some serious questions, and they wanted to get some answers. And so what were those Answers. What were those questions? Well, it says there in verse 11, they were seeking from him a sign from heaven. And this is interesting. They were seeking a sign from heaven to test him. So there's nothing maniacal or terrible about this verb argue, but this idea of testing, that's another matter. But before we get to that, this idea of a sign, well, it's a miracle. It's something that's really divergent from the usual course of, of nature. The Jews used the word heaven when they would be referring to God, wanting to, to honor and, and give reverence to his name. And so they ask him, we want a sign from heaven. In other words, they're saying, we want a sign from God. Show us that you are who you say that you are. They're asking for a supernatural miracle. When you think of this sign from heaven, think Elijah versus the prophets of Baal and fire falling from the sky. Is that not a sign, right? That's what they're kind of looking for. Think about when, when Joshua is leading the children of Israel. They're in battle, and what happens? The, the sky stands still. They're seeking a sign. And really, this isn't too out of line. This isn't out of character for the Jews of this day. Think back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. There's literally a test that's given to the, 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 the children of Israel by Moses as to how they're to test prophets. It's quite a lengthy passage, but I think it's helpful for us to read. This is what the word of God says, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 22. The Lord your God will raise up for, for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. and He shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. 
And so the Pharisees, according to the word of God, are asking for a sign. They're asking to put him to the test to see if this man really is a prophet from God, if his words come true or if not. But really, in their heart of hearts, they're using this passage as an excuse for not responding to the clear evidence, the clear message that had already been clearly apparent in Jesus' ministry and in his teaching. They were trying to test him. What does that word really mean? Well, you might think, well, that's not too bad. That actually seems to be good. Well, it's not, actually. That word occurs here in Mark's gospel several other times. And each time, it is used in some sinful, evil manner. Really, what that word means is this. They're trying to uh, obtain information to be used against a person by trying to cause him or that person to make a mistake. What they're trying to do to Jesus is to trap him and to catch him in a mistake. Imagine watching a, some type of a magic show. Maybe you're a little shocked and you wonder, how did they do that trick that they just did? And so after the show, you approach them and you say, hey, would you show me that trick again? Maybe you want to see the trick, but if you're like me, what you're really trying to do is to say, maybe when they do the trick this time, I'll see how they did it. And I'll know that they're really not magic, right? In some similar way, that's what they're doing. They don't really want to see a sign. They don't want to believe Jesus. They've already written him off. They just want to catch him in a mistake. So we see a little bit of their heart in that word, test. They thought if they could tempt Jesus to try to produce some kind of a a miracle or a sign that he would try and he would fail and therefore he would be discredited. All the crowds would be now where they are, already knowing in their hearts that Jesus is false. That's what they want. What's true is that even if Jesus were to give in to them, And to produce some type of a sign, really he would be abandoning the path that he was on, that his father had commanded him to go on. The question I would ask is this. How many more signs would they even need? How many signs would they need? Look at verse 12. It says, When he heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? He sighed deeply. He's groaning deeply in his spirit, in the inner being. And what does he say? No sign will be given to this generation. The way that that it's worded there with a conditional participle that we don't actually see because of the way it's translated, it's kind of like an oath a Jewish oath that's saying this, may this or that happen to me if there is a sign given. Jesus is saying, if a sign is given to this generation, may, may something bad happen to me. That's what's being said here. And so the force is this, there will be no sign given to this generation. He says this generation twice. And what that is really leaning into, it, what it's pointing to is that this Generation is more than just the Pharisees. A generation typically 
This is used of a, a subset of, of folks in a t- as related to time. So this generation from, from this year to this year, this generation, this, this group of people this, that are about this age. But what's being pointed to is more than this. It's not just this group that's present, but it's more specific. It's a generation that is adulterous. It's the gener- generation that is trying to trip up Jesus. It's the ones who have their hearts from the beginning set against him, Pharisees and the likes. It's not just an age. It's not just these folks. And the fact that he says no sign will be given. It's the kind that they're asking for. In Matthew chapter 12 and even in, in Luke chapter 11, we have this addition, addition to that statement. He says, except for the sign of Jonah. Referring to this fact that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. And that would be the sign that would be given to this generation. A sign from God, miraculous, that though he be in the grave, though he be dead, that he would rise again. This would be the sign that would be given. What a great point that Jesus brings up. This in, in, in Matthew 12, that's recorded there, and in Luke chapter 11. Because it points to this. Even though they see that sign, the Pharisees see that sign, the sign of Jonah, what do they do with that sign? They reject it. And so up to this point, had they not seen enough signs, miraculous, from God even? Of course they had. And they would see more, and they would still reject them. And so truly would there be a sign given to this generation that has hard hearts, set against Jesus, rejecting him outright, there would be no sign for them. As soon as he declares that no sign will be given to them, what does he do? Well, he leaves. And often Mark employs that to kind of move the story along. Well, then he went over here. But, but here, I believe that it indicates that Jesus deliberately is shutting down the conversation. He's disengaging from them and he's moving on. He's going somewhere else. He's going to He's going to concentrate this next little bit on giving instruction and teaching to his disciples, those who we hope and believe would be receptive and not have hard hearts. Perhaps you're thinking this morning, what's what's all the fuss? If he really is the Messiah, if he really is the Son of God, then why would he not just give them a sign? Why would he not just do a miracle for them so so that they would know Maybe he doesn't have the ability, you think. Well, without a doubt, Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the second person of the Trinity, incarnate, before their eyes. The the point is that he's already given them plenty of signs. They're just not listening. And they're just not seeing. Their hearts are hardened. Remember, the the key to understanding the, the Pharisees in this passage is that they came to test him. Yes, they came to to get to the bottom of something, but we know where their heart was. They were attempting to trip him up. Their minds were made up concerning whatever response he would give them. They would find some reason to reject whatever he did or whatever he said. In some sense, Jesus could not win with them. Why? Because their hearts were hardened. And they wanted, those, those Pharisees, they wanted the people, they wanted the crowds to follow suit. When would it be enough? When would they have enough information? What sign would be sufficient? I think of how often I'm asked 
to let my daughter do a flip as she runs up, hold her hands and she runs up my body and flips over backwards. One time, dad, just one time. Okay, let's do it. My back hurts, right? Helped some folks move this week. Should probably not do this, but let's get one. It'll be fine. Well, one later, what happens? One more, just one more, just one more. Well, you know what? I've, I could have spent more time with them this week. I should have, maybe, I, maybe I should just go ahead and pay her back here by giving her one more flip. Okay, so there's the, next, there's, there's the second flip, and then a third is asked. And the mind begins to wonder, when will it be enough? I see the rhythm here, right? One more, Daddy, one more. Some, in some less innocent way, the Pharisees are saying the same thing. Their hearts are saying the same thing. One more. Just give us one more. We want to test you. We want to see. We've, 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 dis- we've said that that one, we've, we've, we've just disqualified that sign. We've disqualified that sign. We want something different, something else. Show us something different. Maybe you're like me dealing with my daughter. You begin to see, wait a minute, when will this end? Will they ever be satisfied? And the answer is no. And I'd like to warn you, Some people take a similar approach to the Bible. It will never be enough. Why? Why why are the defenses of the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of the Word of God, that stood the test of time through thousands of years, why will these answers that we, as the church, have held on to, why is it not enough? Because their hearts are hardened. Because they don't want to believe As they come up with some problem in the text or some problem in the story, alleged contradictions, we, we bring answers to that, and it's like, well, no, that's not enough. I need something else. What about this? And the answer comes, and it's still not enough. So the question can be asked, what's different? Why do some believe? Why can some trust and others not? Why is this piece of information enough, and for others, it's not? Well, Jesus is demonstrating, giving us a case study that their hearts are hardened. They don't want to believe. They pretend to give Jesus a fair case, but they just want to trip him up. I want to address those in the room who struggle with doubt. Maybe you're listening on podcast or you're watching online. The Bible teaches that the human heart is impossible to know, that it's corrupt, When you think you're being fair, perhaps you're actually not. And this is why statements like follow your heart are so dangerous. Because the heart is wicked. And not just yours. And not just the person next to you. But this person on stage as well. Each and every one of us have a wicked heart. And so when we think that we're being fair to Jesus when we think we're being fair to the word of God or whatever else it is, recognize this. Give room for the deceitfulness of your own heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's the most deceitful thing. It's desperately sick, desperately wicked. You can't understand it. And you think you've got it. You're like, yeah, I know I'm a little skewed this way. I know I'm a little biased this way. But even that demonstrates that you are in for a hurt. To think that you can trust your own heart and that you figured it out. Jeremiah goes on. In verse 10, it says, speaking for the Lord, I, the Lord, 
alone, he's saying. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. And I give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The only one capable of truly searching your heart is the word of God. Is God alone. And so when you think you've given Jesus a fair shake, when you think you've given the word of God a chance, and maybe it's come up short on your scales of logic or reasoning, consider this. Your heart perhaps is leaning in on that scale and going the way that it desires regardless. And this is what we see in the lives of the Pharisees. You say, I've weighed it all out. I've come to the conclusion that he is not the Messiah. Know this, your heart deceives you. I've weighed it all out. I've come to the conclusion that the Bible is not the word of God. Know this, if that's your testimony, that the heart, your heart, it deceives you. And so as you consider the Bible, as you consider the the testimonies of Christ and the gospel, know this, beware, your heart is tricky. I beg you to hear that. Your heart is deceitful. And it leans in to the area of the scale that it so desires, to the side that it prefers. So ask yourself this question. Is it possible that you have not been fair in your consideration of Jesus and his message? Is that possible? Have you been wrong before? Is it possible that you were wrong in that assessment? Is it possible that your ability to reason to truth is flawed, even if only slightly? Is that possible? If so, you're agreeing with Jeremiah 17, that your heart, it's sick, it's broken, it's wicked. In Luke chapter 16, the story is told of a man who died and, and, and effectively went to hell. And in that story, he's able to talk. He's able to see into Abraham's bosom or Abraham's paradise. And he calls out to Abraham and he asks, Hey, can you give me some water? Could you send the, the dirty man that begged at my steps when I was alive? Could you send him to cool my tongue? And the answer is no. And he gathers his wits and he says, okay, well, listen, Mike, I, I got one other request. Could you send somebody to my brothers? I'm tormented in this flame and I want them to not be here. I don't want them to come where I've come. I was wrong and I want somebody to tell them the truth. And what does Abraham say? They have plenty of sign. They have Moses. They have the prophets. They're not going to listen, Abraham says. Even if somebody comes back from the dead, They'll do whatever they want to do. Why? Because their hearts are hardened. This is a bit of a commentary, Luke 16, on the Pharisees. After Jesus comes back from the dead, they see the sign of Jonah, and what do they do? They don't see the sign of Jonah. They come up with something else. This is what actually happened. This is what actually happened. Their hearts were hardened. They were blind, unable to see. And so for the Pharisees this morning, my invitation would be for them, if they were here in front of me, is listen, as you consider the Messiah, as you consider Jesus, consider also your heart. I offer that to you as well. If you're skeptical here this morning, if you're doubting in some sincere way even, consider your 
heart. Let's keep going. Verse 14, what does it say? Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, speaking of the disciples, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. So Mark's giving us some context for this next part that we're getting into. This is the disciples, they're in the boat again. They spend a lot of time there traveling with Jesus, right? This is basically the, their 15-passenger van, right? Those of you who grew up in church, you know all about that. So they're in the boat again, and they don't have much to eat. They only have one loaf, right? Jesus begins to teach the disciples. And he uses what just happened with the Pharisees there in Dalmanutha, and he begins to speak from that. And he says in verse 15, he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Guys, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. That word cautioned, it's a word that really, it, it, Mark uses it four times. This is one of those times. He uses it four times. It means to state with force or authority, the lexicon says, what, what others must do. To state with authority, this is what you must do. And it kind of has this idea of separating two things out kind of tied into the to the wording here so it doesn't necessarily just mean like look out floor slippery when wet it's more than that it's like hey floor is slippery with when wet these floors are safe those floors are not don't walk over there walk over here that's what jesus is saying right he's separating these two things out don't go over there go over here he wants to warn them about what the pharisees are dealing with here it's fresh on their minds. So he begins to teach about this idea of leaven or yeast, the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees. You guys know what leaven is or what yeast is. It's, a, it's an activating ingredient that, that we put into our bread and it causes it to rise. Really, it's any means used to make dough rise or have a similar, similar effect on baked goods, according to the dictionary. And oftentimes in the Bible, yeast or leaven, it symbolizes evil. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it does. But it doesn't always mean a bad thing. As a matter of fact, in, in Matthew chapter 13, it symbolizes the growth of the kingdom. And so the idea is expansion. The idea is spreading and activating ingredient. And, but if I'm honest, the main metaphorical use, it really is about the powerful growth and influence and typically in an evil, unhelpful sense. Here Jesus uses it of the Pharisees. I think what he's pointing to is their, their hypocritical behavior. And the idea with yeast is that it's hard to spot yeast in bread. If I were to make a, a, a lump to place in front of you two lumps of dough this morning, that I had just put all the ingredients together, just done that, and I set them before you on the table, it would be very difficult for you to determine which one had the yeast and which one didn't. Now, if we came back, if we turned the, the heat up a bit and we came back in a few minutes, maybe an hour, the difference would be apparent. But at this point in time, it's this secret presence of hypocrisy, and even a hardened heart that's present in this lump of dough or this leaven they looked legit the pharisees did they looked right they looked like they wanted to have a good healthy discussion they looked like their minds were were open and that they needed to get to some to, to, to get to this place with jesus but their minds were already made up 
Their hearts were against Jesus, is what he's saying. Their hearts were against me from the start. And if you're not careful, Jesus is saying, that attitude will spread. That skeptical attitude, requiring more from God, requiring more from Jesus than what he has already given, if you're not careful, that will spread. Some of you, you know that, you've seen that in your own lives. Maybe in the past, as God's blessed you, rescued you, taken your feet from the miry clay, set it up, set you up on a rock, and now you need a greater sign. You need something more. Be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees. Again, it looks the same, but over time, it's more and more obvious. And it spreads. And so we have to be careful. But Jesus mentions another type of leaven that we're to be aware of. It's the leaven of Herod. And some believe that Jesus is really talking about the same thing, just with different titles, which is pretty common. The leaven of, perhaps the leaven of the Pharisees is also the leaven of Herod. And that's possible. But even if they are two different things, at least they are or two of the same things in a sense. Maybe they're at least cousins. If the leaven of the Pharisees was hatred of Jesus, a hard heart towards him, his, his message, maybe thinking it was based on some faux religious logic, then the leaven of Herod was the opposite. It was the outright rejection of Jesus because of a preoccupation or a predisposition towards worldly satisfaction and pleasure. At 10 o'clock this morning, we prayed together. Those who were here that are on the setup team, on the sound team, and as we prayed right before we did, I shared this idea of the leaven of, of Herod. Really, it was this corrupting, I believe, this corrupting influence of, of Herod's evil ways. Worldliness. His unwillingness to accept what he knew was true of the next life. Forsaking that for pleasure in this one, in this life. More concerned with the cares of this life than the next. Jesus' followers of the first century, they had, they've left nothing for us in the way of real estate or riches. Nothing. We have the word of God, inspired by the word of God, containing much of the testimonies and, and acts of the early church. But in the area of real estate and riches, we have nothing. You comb the Middle East, you'll not find the riches of Peter. You won't find the palace of Paul. But you will find the prison that held Paul. And it's underneath the shadow of a palace and amphitheater that was built by Herod. Herod's concern was not the next life, but it was the current one. He was consumed with increasing pleasure and increasing time to enjoy that pleasure in this life. That's his focus. His desire for the things of God, non-existent. To this day, the, the beauty of Herod has been much of it left intact. But to the point that I've walked through one of his vacation homes, I've, I've seen even the very bathtub that he had, the little cutout in the wall where he would place his candle, that safe place, cool, with water, high up in the mountains, with everything that he needed, and a beautiful view. This was his life. This was his God, his belly, his heart. And Jesus is warning the disciples. And he's warning us as well. And he's saying, your heart is deceitful. Be careful. 
If we're not careful, those who we spend time with might take our eyes away from the cross and spend it or, 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 and draw it more toward the coin. Might take it away from the, the great commission and our eyes might be drawn to the great retirement. Jesus is saying, be careful. There's nothing wrong with the pleasures of this life. But when they draw you away, when the cares of this world draw you away, from what God has called you to do, that is the leaven of Herod, and be careful. And so, young person, if you're here this morning and you're listening, be careful, beware. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, of doubt, of hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven of Herod, this allure for physical blessing and pleasure. Be careful. One YouTube video attacking the credibility of, of the Bible can shipwreck your faith if you're not careful. One Facebook post can, can cause you to begin to doubt. Before you know it, you've abandoned Jesus and his message altogether. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of Herod. Beware of desiring to be wise and you end up being the fool. Beware of desiring to be rich and you end up being the pauper. Beware. And as you are bewaring, as you're taking caution, consider your heart. You see, the, the leaven of Herod, it's, it's overt. Herod's leaven is alluring. Herod's leaven is, all, leaven is all about living for this life. Jesus' followers, we've got to be careful. That type of leaven, it creeps into our homes. It creeps into our churches. It creeps, creeps into our hearts, and it trains our eyes to look from the eternal on to the temporal. Away from the cross, away from the Great Commission, and on the path of unrighteousness. And that sort of thinking, it spreads. It multiplies with a force that can overtake you before you are even aware of what is happening. Combating that allure, Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says this, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Everything that you desire, everything that you need, desiring in Christ and needing in this life, it will be added to you if you first seek the kingdom of God. And Christians, so often we get those things backwards. First we seek the things of this world and use them then to then seek the kingdom of God. Or maybe we try to do them at the same time and Jesus says to that, no, this is the leaven of Herod. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other needs that you have. They'll be added to you. And so first we saw the heart of Jesus' foes. But now the passage kind of turns to the heart of his followers. The heart of his followers. Let's look at this idea here in verse 16. It says, They began to discuss with one another that they had no bread. The fact that they had no bread. Really, there's nothing out of place when we read that verse all by itself. Right? And yet that verse, it follows the previous one, and it's surrounded by some interesting teaching about how Jesus was able to provide bread when there was a need. But there's nothing wrong with them discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread, except for the fact that Jesus had just made a statement. Jesus is teaching them. He's saying, listen up, guys. I want you to pay attention. This Friday, I was visiting in on my kid's school, and I noticed as the teacher in one class began to teach her students, one of the, one of the particular kids decided he was going to 
this wasn't super interesting. He was going to talk to the, the kid next to him about something else that was interesting and try to maybe perhaps tell a joke or, or find some, some levity in the situation. And so he begins to do that. He's, he has no interest in what his teacher is trying to teach. This is similar to the disciples. Less cute. Jesus is saying, hey, guys, I want you to beware of some things. And the disciples are like, hey, he said leaven. Did you hear that? I'm hungry. Talk about squirrel, right? These guys, have, they're, they're distracted. And they begin likely discussing, as Jesus is trying to teach them, whose fault it was that there wasn't enough bread for them to eat dinner. Why wasn't there any bread in the boat? They began to talk about that. Whose fault is this? Let's get to the bottom of that. That sounds like I'm on the boat. Let's get to the bottom of this. Maybe others are trying to solve the problem. Well, what can we do to get some, some bread? This is what they're talking about more than likely. Jesus is offering them some, the spiritual. And they pass it right over looking for the physical. They're not interested in that right now. They're interested in the physical. They're interested in this life. Sounds a little bit like perhaps the leaven of Herod. Look at verse 17. And Jesus said, and Jesus, I'm sorry, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? <laughs> why are you discussing that? Do you not know what I just said? And did you not hear it? Don't you know where we just came from before Dalmanutha? Are you, is your memory this short? That you couldn't remember? If you're a Hubtown kid taking notes this morning, look on your sheet there. It says something about God is wise. Jesus, God, the second person in the Trinity, also, right? Just fully God. Fully wise. He's aware of what they're saying. He's aware of their hearts and the state of their hearts. And he's aware of what they need. And so he begins to ask these rhetorical questions. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? He goes on. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Not yet. Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? You think they're listening now? No more talk of bread. Maybe they're slouching down, looking at the bottom of the boat, listening to Jesus. You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, why are you not listening? Is your heart hardened? Jesus asked them, is this really this, this physical need that you think you have? You're not even hungry yet. You're just worried that you might not have a meal in a moment when you do get hungry. Is this really the most pressing thing? He's asking them these rhetorical questions. And he's pointing to this, that their spiritual hearts are hardened. That word there for hardened, it's related to the idea of petrification. Organic matter being turned and converted into stone. So when it's used here in this statement, the expression means something like this. It's somebody that is, is, is causing somebody else or even their own heart to become completely unwilling to learn something new or accept present information. I'm just not going to believe that. I'm just not going to believe that. Jesus is asking, is that the state of your heart? Have you hardened your hearts? Are your hearts so hardened, so petrified that what what's used to be alive is now not alive? 
He's pointing to their sluggishness in learning. Their disregard for spiritual matters. And he's pointing out that their hearts are, in fact, hardened. He goes on to say, and do you not remember? Look at verse 19. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? It's not a rhetorical question. Answer it. And they said to him, 12. Okay. And then the seven pieces of bread for the 4,000. How many baskets full did you take up of broken pieces? And they said to him, seven. And remember, and it reflects it here in this text, that we see baskets twice. But the first time baskets is saying it's referring to a lunchbox. How many lunchboxes did you have left over? Twelve. Okay. And remember, when we had the the seven loaves of bread and the 4,000 people, how many coolers did you have full of broken pieces? And I said to him, seven. So five loaves for let's just say 5,000 people. We think there's more, but let's just say five loaves for 5,000. That's one loaf of bread that Jesus uses to feed how many people? 1,000. You guys are good at math, right? And there's leftovers, right? 12 lunch boxes left over. Now, let's see some of you that are feeling real, real good about math. Let's move on to the next one. Seven loaves for 4,000 people. How many, lo- how many people are feeding off one loaf? Some people are getting their calculators out. Well, I did the math earlier. I rounded, but here it is. 570. That's if it's only 4,000 people in that crowd eating on five loaves. One loaf of bread, Jesus is saying, do you not remember? One loaf of bread fed 571 people, and guess what, disciples? They were satisfied. Why? Because how many coolers were left over? Seven. Seven coolers. Jesus is saying, you started with so little. You fed so many, and you had so much left over. And now you're concerned about this one loaf, five loaves for 5,000, 1,000 people eating off a loaf of bread, basically, seven loaves for 4,000, one loaf of bread feeding 570. Are you kidding me? 21, he says, do you not yet understand? Now, Jesus might be railing on his disciples, but he's also engaging them. He's meeting them where they're at. And I love what he says here. Do you not yet understand? Now, he could have just said, do you not understand? But he adds that adverb. He says, do you not yet understand? And I love that. Here's what he's saying. That word, it's temporal. It's, and it's linear. It's dealing with time point A to point B, and he's saying, this is where you're at right now. And as he says, do you not yet understand? He's looking backwards with that statement, and he's saying, I'm frustrated. I think you should have already understood this by now. You've seen these signs. You should know what they're pointing to. You've seen what 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 I'm capable of. But he's also looking forward when he says, not yet. And there's frustration there. But there's also hope. He's saying, not yet. But it's coming. Understanding is coming. And I love that. 
There's truth there. There's frustration. And yet there is hope. And so he asks his disciples, do you not yet understand? And I want to take that question and I want to turn it to you. And I want to turn it to me as well. And I want us to allow Jesus to ask that question of us. Do you not yet understand? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, listen, I've, I've heard Jesus' message. I, I, maybe I've even read the gospel. Maybe you've grown up in church. And yet this morning you're still saying, I, I need more sign. I need more. I need more from Jesus. I need more from the Bible. I'm just too smart for this. I, I, I see too many problems. I need something more. Well, doubt does plague the thoughtful. But doubt also plagues the prideful. And this morning, the question for you is this. Do you not yet understand that your heart is the problem? The problem is not with the message. The problem is not with the messenger. It is the recipient of that message or the one who would not receive it. The problem is your heart. Maybe this morning as you consider the life that Christ has called us to live, I would ask you this, do you not yet understand that he's called us as his followers, as his disciples, to what? To seek first the kingdom of God. And when Jesus opens the book up, so to speak, and begins to teach us, do we then say, I'm hungry, and I'm not hungry for what you have for me today, Jesus. I'm hungry for bread. I need something physical. And Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life. If you eat of this, you'll, you'll, never, you'll never hunger again. Is this not enough? You say, I, I don't know that it's enough. Well, do you not yet understand? Consider your own heart. You think that you know what you need, but what about the one who made you? The one who tries the heart. The one who weighs it. The one who tells us, your hearts are sinful. Your hearts are broken. Your hearts are sick. They don't know what they need. I know what you need. Do we not understand that yet as a church? Look, Jesus says that he has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what Mark wants us to understand. And thankfully, the disciples are beginning to see that. Soon we'll read of a testimony of the disciples and they'll speak of Jesus and they'll say, this is who we think that you are. This is who we know that you are. And so many other people are confused about who you are, but Jesus, <laughs> we're finally beginning to understand who you are. We're finally beginning to understand your message, and I pray that that is our testimony as well, church. So if you doubt this morning, consider your heart. If you're prone to wander, consider your heart. As you consider Christ, consider your heart. Let's ask God to bless his word. Father, we look to your word this morning with a confidence and an expectation that you will feed us. That's where we started. We sang together as a church that we wanted you to speak. And by our own testimony, we declared to you that we needed your words, your words of truth, your word that sustains, your word that washes, your word that cleanses and sanctifies us. We declared that to you that we needed and you've delivered it to us this morning 
the testimony of your son, Jesus Christ, and his interaction both with foe and follower. And we've seen this morning that our heart, we've been reminded of the truth of Jeremiah 17, that our hearts are wicked. Our hearts are sick. And that though we may write you off, though we may write off the message of the gospel, the problem is not with Jesus. The problem is not with the gospel. The problem is not with the Great Commission. But the problem is with our hearts. So we come to the one who knows the hearts. We come to the one who replaces hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. We ask that you work in our lives. And with hope, we close this service down asking this, that you would not forsake us to our thoughtlessness, that you would not forsake us to our own desires and devices and our doubt, but that you would continue to, in hope, cause us to understand. We lean into you this morning, weak as we are, but hopeful. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.